So good morning, everyone. It's an uh, honor to be sitting here in the chair of the teacher today. So the mystics, as I think you all know, testify that uh, the truth of reality is non-dual, and it can be realized, uh, not by any ordinary means, but uh, it can be realized. But somehow uh, this truth for many of us is obscured, we, we miss it. And the reason, they say, is because we're caught up in our thoughts and imaginary stories about what's going on. So to investigate this claim, we can test this out. So how do we become aware of our mind as it wanders off and gets caught up in these stories? Well, one thing we can do is become more aware of that by contrasting it with something quite different, which is an attention that's very stable and still, and that isn't caught up in lots of stories. And so what we do is we just arbitrarily pick an object, such as our breath, and we make the intention to just keep the attention on this simple object without getting lost in thought. So that when we do get lost in thought, we become aware of that by contrast with our original intention. So it works a lot like the precepts do. You make an intention to do something and so that you'll notice when you're not. And it's simply a tool to become more aware of something that's going on in our minds. And as the attention becomes more stable and still, we're able to notice more subtle distractions from the object and become aware of these more subtle kind of features. So sit in a comfortable position, relax, and make an intention to rest your attention on your breath. Distinctions in time and space. 
And these are really deeply rooted in our experience, so much so that we don't even question them usually. We're just brought up experiencing the world in this way and really take it for granted that this is just the way things are. And we dream up these distinctions, we take them to be real, and then we end up living within those boundaries. And that's what's called bondage, spiritually speaking. So we imagine this imaginary world, we think it's real, and then we're uh, stuck living in it. So the consequence of this is that we feel isolated, we're cut off from the world, because we've imagined this distinction, and we're also, because of the past, present, and future, we're destined to die. So this can create lots of suffering. And in addition to this big kind of existential suffering, there's all sorts of little sufferings about all the things I want and don't want, all the things I like and dislike, and we're in this battle with the imaginary world that's created. So is there a resolution to this? The mystics say that there is, and deep down we all hope and try to resolve it. The question is, are we going about it the right way? Normally our way of going about this is misguided, and it can even lead us to believe that maybe there is no real solution. That's just the way it is. Born into this life, we're going to die, and you should just accept that. But the mystics say that that's a mistake, that this is actually uh, all based on an illusion, and that this yearning, this hope that there is a resolution, is really our inner wisdom speaking to us. So, for example, listen to what Rumi has to say. In whatever state you may be, seek. Seek water constantly, O man of dry lips. For your dry lips give witness that in the end you will find the fountain. The lips' dryness is a message from the water. If you keep on moving, without a doubt, you will find it. So that's like this promise that the mystics have for us, that there is an answer to this journey. So how do we go about doing this? Well, Jesus said to his followers, If you stay in my teaching, you will be my true disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. If we have faith in the teachings of the mystics like Jesus, that's well and good. The problem is, people in this culture can be very skeptical of these radical teachings that the mystics make, and understandably so. It's really crazy if you think about it from the normal perspective of consensus reality. Here these people are saying there really is no time, there's no space, there are no distinctions, you don't really exist. You start telling that to people, they'll think you're wacko, and they might even lock you up. So normally, that's not something that we consider when we're young as an option to resolving this problem of living in this life of suffering. So we go looking for other places for truth. For example, um, when I was young, I thought, well, uh, in reality, it should be what the physicists tell us, really, because they're the ones that go out and they get to the bottom of things, right? They tell us what the laws of the universe are, where it all came from, what's really going on here. What is this all about? Well, uh, in a scientific culture like ours, they're like the high priests. They're the ones with the answers. So I went off and studied physics. Now, it's not totally a blind alley to go do something like that because physics actually tells, uh, tells you something pretty interesting, and it can help loosen your uh, preconceived ideas of what reality is. So, for example, quite a while ago, it was commonly believed that, uh, and this accords with our 
everyday experience that the Earth is still. We basically have the sense that we're at rest here. Right? We're still, the Earth is solid. And then we watch the sunrise in the morning. And even our language today reflects this, that our experience is the Earth is at rest and the sun is rising. And then the sun is setting. But then science investigated these phenomena. And eventually Copernicus came along and said, well, no, actually, the sun is at rest. And the Earth is spinning on its axis. So the sun doesn't rise. That's an illusion. The Earth is rotating, and it's only uh, an appearance that the sun is moving. It's actually at rest, and we're the ones that are rotating. So this is very counterintuitive, but it gives you the assurance, maybe, that uh, physics is leading you somewhere. Oh, well, now we're starting to peel the layers away of this mistaken delusion. Maybe there's something underneath here that will give me the final answer. So it starts to starts to do that. It also starts to uh, loosen up our ideas about, well, what is really going on? Maybe I didn't have all the answers. Maybe our, my experience of the sun moving isn't actually the reality. Maybe there's another way to look at this. And so we can at least intellectually start to question our basic assumptions about what the world is and how it's operating. And it's actually an interesting experiential exercise if you're ever interested if you're up before dawn, especially if you're in a wide open space uh, and the sun hasn't come up yet, you can maybe just look over to the east and uh, when it comes up, see if you can experience the earth rotating instead of the sun rising. But this shift in perspective is only a relative kind of reorientation. It's, it's not really an absolute truth that physics has handed us. In fact, Einstein came along and he said, well, actually, that's not true either. You can't take the sun as your as the truth, as the real reference point, as opposed to the earth. That's actually just another arbitrary reference frame. The theory of relativity means that any point of view is relative, and there's no absolute meaning to being at rest or in motion. So it's just as true to say the earth is at rest as it is to say that the sun is at rest. In fact, nothing uh, really is at rest unless you're talking about it relative to something else. And same with motion. So motion and rest are relative terms that only have meaning depending on the reference frame that you've chosen, which is totally arbitrary. So whether the Earth is moving or the Sun is moving, that's not giving you any kind of absolute truth here. So the more you study physics, or I should at least say the more I study physics, the more I came to realize that it wasn't going to give any final answers like this. And quantum theory is even worse. That's you know really tantalizing. It has all these mysteries in it. You can interpret it in all these mystical ways and everything. But all these interpretations are just that. They're interpretations of the mathematics. There's no question that the mathematics of the theory works in accordance with our experimental results. No one knows how to interpret it. There's no consensus on one way to understand what this mathematics means. There's uh, really no way to experimentally distinguish between these different interpretations. So that's another problem uh, with, with physics, is that you've got these theories, but then there's no real way to know what they mean. But still, it can help, uh, again, like, like the earlier example, it can help loosen the grip on our normal ways of, of experiencing things. So one thing that 
it's pretty safe to say that quantum theory does is it, it says that our usual idea that things are separated in space isn't true. If you try to think of things as particular subatomic particles as separated and isolated from each other completely, it just doesn't mesh with the experimental results. It's that simple. So at the very least, it challenges our assumptions. It doesn't necessarily tell us what the truth is, but it's going to uh, kind of pull the rug out from under some of our preconceptions. And so that starts to take us part of the way on this path of knowledge uh, inquiry into what really the truth is and what reality is. And in a more general sense, these problems with physics also apply really to any worldview. We don't have to necessarily be talking about science here. It could be any worldview, any uh, whether it's a spiritual worldview or a religious worldview. So if there's no final truth in physics and physical theories, well, maybe there's some kind of truth we can cling on to in mathematics. So you might, like, I did go off and study mathematics. And what you find there is quite interesting. On the one hand, you might think, well, there are absolute truths there. I mean, isn't 2 plus 2 always 4? There's like, how could you possibly question that? Uh, there's no experiment that can disprove that, right? But the more you study uh, mathematics and how it works, you see that it's actually, uh, the truths in mathematics are completely relative in the sense that you choose arbitrarily a set of axioms and then you make logical deductions to get conclusions. And the truth of math is that if your axioms are true, then your conclusions are true. But who knows whether the axioms are true or not? They may be completely false. And your deduction might accurately connect them. But if the axioms are false, your conclusions are false as well. So to illustrate this, um, you might be familiar with, uh, from high school, Euclidean geometry, where you have uh, you draw circles and triangles in the plane, and you maybe uh, prove certain theorems about them, like all the angles inside of a triangle add up to 180 degrees and things like that. One of the axioms of this Euclidean geometry is that two parallel lines never intersect. Well, someone came along a while ago and said, well, uh, what if that's not true? And they actually developed a whole geometry called non-Euclidean geometry that's based on the assumption that parallel lines can intersect. For example, on the surface of a sphere, you start two lines and they'll actually end up intersecting two great circles, you might say. The axioms can actually be changed, and then the truths of geometry change as well. And so they're just relative to the axioms you've chosen. So even though that's kind of an eternal truth in the sense that, well, if you pick those axioms, you'll always get these conclusions. There's no doubt about it, and it's never going to change. There's no one to say that those axioms are true in any kind of absolute sense. So the, this mind that wants to know the truth and get to the bottom of things also comes up empty in mathematics. It doesn't really get to the ultimate bottom of things there. So this is where the mind starts to reach the limits of kind of what our scientific culture has to offer. And at this point, you might start listening to other things, like the testimony of the mystics. And lo and behold, what do they say about knowing the ultimate truth? Well, Chakra says it's beyond the grasp of the senses. The intellect cannot understand it. It's out of the reach of thought. 
such as Brahman and that thou art. The Lankavatara Sutra says, words cannot express the highest reality. Moreover, in highest reality, there are no differentiations to be discriminated, and there's nothing to be predicated with regard to it. The mind just can't go there. Dionysius, the Arapagite, said, the one which is beyond all thought is inconceivable by thought. And to put it in no uncertain terms, the Dean Arapagite says, he who seeks to know reality by theoretical speculation is flogging a dead horse. <laughs> so this, this starts to confirm what the seeker has found in coming up empty in, in mathematics and in physics, and the same will happen in philosophy. The mind will just spin around and find that there's ultimately nothing really it can grasp onto as an ultimate truth. And so the mystics are saying, well, yeah, that's absolutely right. If you want ultimate truth, you can't get it that way. And when this kind of mind starts to seek an ultimate truth, it's always going to come up empty. And so in a certain sense, you, the experience is like an unknowing instead of a knowing. If you're thinking of knowing in this, in this subject-object conceptual sense of knowing, it's more like a non-knowing. And basically that's a way of saying that the conceptual mind can't grasp this. And so this is how Plotinus expresses this. Our way then takes us beyond knowing. Knowing and knowable must all be left aside. Every object of thought, even the highest, we must pass by. For all that is good is later than this and derives from this, as from the sun all the light of the day. Dionysius says, uh, in the diligent exercise of mystical contemplation, leave behind the sense and the operations of the intellect, that thou mayest arise by unknowing toward the union with him who transcends all being and knowledge. For by the unceasing and absolute renunciation of thyself and of all things, thou mayest be born on high into the superessential radiance of the divine darkness. Divine darkness? That sounds ominous. What is this darkness? Well, the author of the Cloud of Annoying also uses the term darkness, and I think there's good reason to suspect he read Dionysius. He says, by darkness I mean lack of knowing. Just as anything that you do not know or may have forgotten may be said to be dark to you, for you cannot see it with your inward eye, for this reason, it's called a cloud, not of the sky, of course, but of unknowing, a cloud of unknowing between you and your God. So this mind is trying to grasp it, it's trying to think about it and define it, put it into words, put it into concepts, make it into an object, it's always gonna come up empty. And so that's a kind of unknowing relative to that kind of mind. And this kind of mind is you might compare it to a child, a child's mind who thinks that there's a biggest number. So that you talk about infinity to a kid, and they, they think, oh, it must be just a really big number, you know, just huge, like a giant number. That's, that must be what infinity is. 
And our minds are like this. We, we think of this ultimate reality and we think, oh, it must be something, some, something that I just haven't understood yet, some object that I haven't grasped yet, some, some idea or theory that I just need to understand or, or experience. And so the mind is like this kid's mind who, who thinks there's just some biggest number and it just has to get there. Well, Dr. Wolf, who's one of Joel's teachers, says that awakening cannot be a matter of gradual attainment, for the infinite is never realized by progressive additions of finite manifolds. There's no question of development on this level in the sense of progression by finite steps. So the problem is this habit of this limited mind trying to grasp on to something unlimited. It can't do it, but it keeps trying. So how do you convince this poor little mind that it just can't do this? Well, one way um, you can imagine the spiritual path working is it just kind of exhausts this mind and shows this mind that it just can't do this. So to go back to the illustration with the numbers, how would you convince this kid that, that they can't count to infinity, that infinity is just something you can't get to by keep adding numbers? Well, you can't write down the infinite, all the numbers, and say, here, look, see, it's infinite. You just can't write down an infinite number of numbers, and you can't count there. You can't say, okay, well, let me show you. Let's start counting, and then you finally get to infinity. You can't do that either. So how can you get this insight to be transmitted to the child? Well, one way to do it is to say, okay, well, let's not try and establish that the numbers are infinite. Let's do the opposite. Let's say, what if they were finite? Okay, let's say there is a biggest number. Let's call it N. There's some biggest number, and it's called N. Or to look at it another way, let's just say the, the numbers are finite. There's only a finite number of numbers. And we have them all lined up here. We can, since there's just a finite number of them, we can order them. So over here are the smallest ones, and then over here we have the biggest ones. So over along the biggest uh, end of the spectrum, we have a last one. Right? There's a finite number of them. So one of them has to be the biggest one. Well, we know with any number, you can always add one to it. And when you add one to a number, you get a bigger number. So there's a number, and it's bigger than the biggest number. So there can't be a biggest number, because if there were, you would always be able to name a larger number than that. So that assumption that the numbers are finite leads to this contradiction. And so that's an analogy, you might say, for how the spiritual path can work, where you, you tell the mind to do these things that it really can't do, and then finally it exhausts itself and realizes, oh, I can't do that, and then it stops. And then maybe something else can be recognized. So it's really a matter of looking at how this mind is operating and seeing its error. Simone Weil says, we do not overcome our obstacles. We look at them fixedly for as long as necessary until, if they're due to powers of illusion, they disappear. So we simply look at this until the, our misconception about it 
disappears, it becomes clear, and then there's a space that can open up there. So it's not about discarding or rejecting, like you don't have to get rid of the finite numbers or anything like that. You just have to understand that they're finite and that counting just doesn't get you to infinity. So the teachings that the mystics give can be seen as kind of contrast to our habitual way of experiencing the world that's mistaken. So just like in the meditation, where we took this meditation object, keep the attention still on a simple thing, keep your mind undistracted, not caught up in the thoughts. That's simply a tool that's used to help us become aware of what our mind is habitually doing, dreaming up these, these stories of I and so on. So similarly, uh, the teaching that there's an infinite number of uh, numbers can make us think, well, gee, I thought uh, there was the largest number. And then you can look at that and see it's actually not correct. So you, you're more likely to notice a mistake if someone points out that it's other than uh, something that might be correct. So it helps us bring attention to uh, delusion in a sense. And this can be really challenging as it gets deeper and deeper into experience. These fundamental distinctions between past and present and future and between I and other, these really are deeply rooted in the way that we experience the world habitually. And so to start to challenge those is very difficult. You have to look at them repeatedly and continuously. And there's often emotional resistance to challenging those. There's a kind of attachment and investment into experiencing the world this way as well. It can be scary to even imagine experiencing the world another way. So there has to be a kind of a personal investment and willingness to uh, seek the truth no matter what, no matter where it's going to lead you. If you want the truth, then it doesn't matter if it's uncomfortable. You want the truth. As Simone Weil says, how can we distinguish the imaginary from the real in the spiritual realm? We must prefer a real hell to an imaginary paradise. <laughs> That's how much you have to want it. You have to say, you know, I don't, I don't care if it's nice or not, if I personally like it or not. This isn't about what you like. This is about what's real. This is about what's true. And if you really want to know what's true, you can't just let your preferences and fears and things get in the way of that. You want to know what's true. And the mystics assure us that the truth ultimately is good and that it will resolve this problem of suffering. Uh, We may not realize that as we're going along in the path at all stages, but uh, this is the kind of determination that's required. As I said earlier, the story of I is built up of a story in time and an I in world uh, made up of distinctions in space. So let's take a closer look at, at those two aspects. We have in time, we normally think that the past is real, something really happened to me yesterday, as opposed to, uh, for example, if I wake up from a dream. And let's say I dreamt that I did something horribly yesterday to a friend of mine. I wake up from the dream, I say, oh, phew, it was just a dream, it wasn't real. But if we wake up in the morning and we remember what we did yesterday to our friend, that's quite a different matter. Now really, these are both imaginations in the present of something that's being projected into the past. 
And in that sense, they have equal status. The mind is imagining a past that's no longer here and something that took place, so there's a story. Like a flashback in a movie or, or a novel or something. It's projecting something that's not present immediately right now into it. It's an imaginary world. Similarly, with the future, we might anticipate something that we fear is going to happen, get worked up about it. If this happened in a dream, there might be some fear about something that's coming to get us or, or what have you. And then you wake up from the dream and say, phew, well, thank goodness it was only a dream. That was a projection into the future that was imaginary. Similarly, in our waking life, time is constructed in a similar way. We imagine something in the future that's not actually present right here and now. And the teaching of non-duality says that these distinctions aren't ultimately real. They're certainly imagined. The mind certainly imagines these things. But they're not ultimately real. So if we want to know the ultimate truth, it's something beyond that. Which is why the mystics say that the truth is eternal. And this is where we get to the good news, which is that because the truth is beyond these distinctions of past and present and future, it's not something that we lost in the past. It's not something that we need to get in the future. It's not something we had in the past and, and don't have now. It's, it transcends all those distinctions, which means that it's here already. There's, there's no getting it or getting rid of it or losing it or finding it or... The truth transcends time, so it's an eternal truth. So that's the good news that it's already here. As Jesus said, it will not come by watching for it. It will not be said, look here, here it is. Or look over there, there it is. Rather, the Father's kingdom is spread upon the earth, but people don't see it. So how do we go about seeing it if it's already here and we don't seem to see it? Ramana Maharshi says, the seeker of liberation realizes, without doubts or misconceptions, his real nature by distinguishing the eternal from the transient and never swerves from his natural state. This is known as the practice of knowledge. This is the inquiry that leads to self-realization. So this discrimination between the eternal and the real, this teaching of the truth being eternal, again, in the contrast to say, well, you're looking for the truth? Well, it's eternal. And you're like, well, gee, everything I'm experiencing is changing. And so it, it helps me to see that, oh, you know, I think this is the truth. I think that is the truth. Well, it's all changing. And so I can't find the truth that way. And so it helps us bring attention to this mistaken way of looking for the truth. The Buddhists call this a meditation on impermanence. And not only do we find that impermanence applies to objects like our car will eventually break down, but impermanence in moment-to-moment -moment experience. The car isn't here. You think you have a car, maybe. It's parked out there, but none of us are experiencing the car. Maybe we have a thought of the car. That could be an experience. But there's a belief in the thought of the car that is the delusion here. That that's ultimately true. But to believe that somehow that's real is the, the crux of the issue here. Which brings us to the one of the other fundamental distinctions, which is the distinctions in space. And uh, that's what makes us think that these objects are, are actually real. There's more than just an appearance of a white object in the visual field here. There's really a cup out there in space. 
and it works very well, and I can take a sip of water out of it. But is there really something out there, independent of consciousness? Well, that's something to investigate. There's, there's a, a, a distinction the mind is making, the thought is making, about these objects, and that's perfectly functional, but is there really something behind them, you might say? Dr. Wolf explains it this way, that in some sense the object exists cannot be denied, for it is unquestionably a datum for immediate experience. He's just saying something's appearing. Can't, can't deny that there's an appearance. But to affirm further that the thing exists is to add an overbelief that's not necessary for either experience or reason. The thing is that which is supposed to exist, quite independently of any relationship to or within consciousness. So just as we have this idea about a car existing out there that's not even an experience, even when there's something in the visual field appearing, the idea that there really is a cup sort of behind that experience, or uh, a real cup that's giving rise to this experience, somehow exists in some reality of its own, so that if I hide this from all of you, is the cup really there? <laughs> but that's something to investigate and experience. If we want absolute truth, we have to really be honest with ourselves. Are we finding absolute answers? You know, if our mind tells us, well, of course the cup is really there. Well, do you really know that? Can you doubt it? Do you have absolute certainty that it's there? If you're really honest with yourself, you muster up some doubt, probably. And so it's about questioning these really deep-rooted assumptions about our, our experience. If you want to know absolute truth, those have to be questioned until you find something or nothing or whatever it is or isn't that can't be doubted, that you that there's just no possibility of even questioning. It's not even something that the mind is grasping. It's not even a thought or an experience. It's just a, a fact or reality about which there's no doubt. So when we experience something uh, like a cup, there's, there's the immediacy of this white visual appearance, and there's thought that there's a cup. And then there's something else that's kind of often added, which is that there's something real, the cup kind of exists in and of itself. And that's the part that's the mistake, which is why the Buddha says, you should train yourself thus. In reference to the scene, there will only be the scene. In reference to the heard, only the heard. In reference to the sensed, only the sensed. And this is the key. In reference to the cognized, only the cognized, or the thought. So there certainly is an experience of thought of a cup. But if this were a dream, you could certainly be imagining that you're experiencing a cup. But then you wake up and you say, oh, that was a dream. Well, what happened to the cup? There was certainly the experience of a cup, but did the cup really exist? Well, you'd say, no, it was a dream. Well, what they're saying is that that's what it's like in waking life, too. <laughs> Pretty crazy, isn't it? <laughs> but if you read these mystics, what else are you going to conclude here? I mean, they, they say crazy stuff. 
Listen to the Listen to chakra. No matter what the deluded person may think he's perceiving, he's really seeing Brahman and nothing else but Brahman. This universe, which is superimposed upon Brahman, is nothing but a name. So we imagine some cup that really exists, but really, it's just a superimposition that we're tricked by. It's nothing but a name. <coughs> Atmananda, uh, who's a Advaita Vedanta teacher from the 20th century, he says, the usual statement, I am conscious of a thing, is not correct, since a thing can never be the object of consciousness. When you search for that thing in consciousness, it is nowhere to be found. It has merged in consciousness. And the statement ultimately means, consciousness knows consciousness. So you search for the supposedly real cup out there. Well, all you ever really find are, you know, you can touch it, so you have sensation, you can see it, so you have visual appearances, you can, you know, feel it. There's a hardness when I push it against my face. It doesn't have much of a smell. But those are all certainly appearances, but where's that real cup that is imagined to exist? That's like something extra to add on here. In the Advaita Vedanta tradition, they call this teasing out of what is real and unreal uh, discrimination between the real and unreal, or the eternal and the transient. And it can actually sound dualistic, what's, what's going on here, uh, because you're discriminating. And you'll read Buddhist texts, on the other hand, and they'll use the word discriminating mind in sort of a pejorative sense. You want to get away from that discriminating mind that's making distinctions and things. But really the key here, the, the way this word is used in Advaita uh, Vedanta tradition is it's a, it's a practice that's used to <coughs> examine these beliefs, these projections, these uh, ideas that something really exists, and to see, to examine that, and see that actually what you believe to exist, you can't find it. And so, in that way, as Simone Weil said, the, the illusion just drops away. Once you look at it, you just look at it, and it eventually dissolves. And that's the way the discrimination works between the real and the unreal. So you just look at what you think is real until you see that it's actually not. So there was nothing that's destroyed or eliminated it's only uh, it's like awakening from the dream. The, the cup that you dreamt about, you can't get rid of that cup because it was never really there. There was the experience, the dreaming experience of the cup, but the cup that you thought was real never was real, so you can't get rid of it. Uh, you just have to see that it wasn't real. The Upanishads describe this process uh, with the words neti neti, which means not this, not this. So whenever you find something you experience that you think is real, you can examine that. Say, well, is this real? Can I really find what I think is the reality there? Shankar says, the reality is attained through discrimination. Brahman is real. The universe is unreal. A firm conviction that this is so is called discrimination between eternal and non-eternal. So this technique of discriminating between reality and illusion 
is the path of knowledge or Jnana Yoga in the Advaita tradition. And Ananda talks about it this way. Allow consciousness to come in at every stage of your perceptions. Recognize consciousness in all your perceptions and see that it is the only real part of the perceptions. Gradually, you realize that the whole world, including your own body, senses, and mind, is nothing but consciousness, and you are free. So, this uh, consciousness is not some conceptual idea that we grasp. Uh, The mind can't grasp it, as we heard earlier. You can't think about it. It's not some experience that comes and goes, because it transcends time. It's not here or there, because it transcends the distinctions in space. So, you know, this can kind of leave you going, well, gee, how do I recognize this? Um, and that's, the, that's that child's mind trying to get to the biggest number. It's hearing all these teachings, and it's like, whoa. You know, and it's spinning in this cloud of unknowing, saying what to do. So there are teachings that are called direct pointers that just say, look, just the fact that there's awareness right now. Just the bare fact. It's not that you're aware of this or aware of that, or that even you are aware. It's just the bare, plain fact that there is consciousness, there is awareness. There can be a thought about that, an idea about that, but really the consciousness precedes any of those thoughts. How do you know that there's consciousness? I mean, is that something you remember? Is that something you have to think? Where, what part of the mind knows that? Is that the thinking mind that knows that? Do you have to be thinking to know that there's awareness? Do you have to be seeing something to know there's awareness? Could you possibly get away from it? Could you possibly deny it? Could you, could you grasp it? Could you push it away? Can you say it's here? Can you say it's there? It's really, really simple. So this basic, fundamental, kind of irrefutable fact, it's the first fundamental of the Center's teachings, which is that consciousness alone is absolutely real. Not simply what that means, is that anything else that you think is real is imaginary. It's not absolutely real. It can have a relative reality. But if you're looking for absolute reality, all of that gets surrendered. And you're just left with what's undeniably the case. Dr. Wolf's uh, first fundamental of his philosophy, he put it this way, consciousness is original, primary, and constitutive of all things. And by things he, here, uh, in this statement, he's not talking about the delusion that there are things apart from consciousness. He's just talking about appearances. All the appearances are made up of consciousness. There's nothing uh, in those appearances apart from consciousness. That would just be a subtle kind of uh, objectification of a thing. So you can actually look at that. So... There's an appearance that arises, and is that separate from consciousness? Is that separate from awareness? 
Could there be an, an appearance without awareness? What, what sense would that even make to say, oh, that appeared? It was an awareness, though. Uh, you, can, you can look at the appearances and say, well, is it even possible to distinguish them? If there were, and let's suppose, let's do a little proof by contradiction here, suppose the, the uh, appearance was distinct from awareness. Well, then how could awareness possibly know the appearance? How, how, could, how could it make contact with it to be aware of it if there was some division between them? So if, even if you imagine some kind of division, it can't be a real one. Because of it, it has to be like permeable in order for the awareness to contact the appearance. So there can't be a real distinction between them. How could you separate the, the wave from the water? How could you how can you take the the wind and separate it from the air? How can you take the appearances and somehow extract them from the awareness? Shankar says, Brahman cannot be avoided since it is everywhere. Brahman cannot be grasped since it's transcendent. It cannot be contained since it contains all things. It is one without a second. In Brahman, there's no diversity whatsoever. So, because this is already here, this consciousness, there's no, no question. And because it's prior to the distinctions in time and space, there's, there's, it's meaningless to talk about a person who's going to realize it, or a person who hasn't realized it, or a person who's deluded it. Or, those are all relative distinctions. They're not the absolute truth to even talk in those terms. And so it can't come and go. It can't be possessed or, or, or not possessed. It's just a matter of noticing. As Simone Weil says, looking is what saves us. Most of you have probably read Joel's book, but I just wanted to read a passage from the end where I think it's a wonderful passage because he, he gives you the sense of the simplicity and immediacy of this. This is his account of, of his awakening. It was not a thought. It was not a feeling. It was not an experience. I was everything. I was nothing. I was everywhere. And I was nowhere. Nowhere to be found. Hence, nowhere to be lost. I had never expected this. What had I expected? Something exceptional, luminous, visionary. The platonic forms behind all forms, or a transcendental light wiping out the universe, or maybe the cosmic voice of God calling me from eternity. I don't know, but it wasn't this. This was much, much too obvious. (laughs) It wasn't even right under my nose. It was my nose. And it was a finger uncurling miraculously in front of my eyes. It was a car horn, sharp and crisp in the night. It was the sound of my sheets rustling as I shifted position on the bed. 
It was the doorknob, effortlessly, staring me in the face. They were all so effortless. And therein lies the true oneness and beauty of the world. We are all effortlessly together, brothers and sisters to the stars. Nor do I mean this metaphorically, though metaphor it is, for this was no gauzy vision full of images and archetypes. The image had burst, and the light was out, and the light was everything. The metaphorical world had come to an end, and I was awake in the real world, the world without end. Wow. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> Amen. So now the little, the little kid's mind comes in and says, Oh, yeah, I want that. <laughs> yeah, that sounds good. That sounds good. And then maybe there's some experience or even glimpse of this in the retreat, and then it fades away. And the mind's like, Oh, I lost that. What happened? Or maybe it's not fading away. It's like, Oh, I'm like now. Yeah, cool. <laughs> Well, these are all just thoughts, right? I, this, lost, have. So that's another uh, illusion, right? These are thoughts about self and other and time, something that happened and so forth. It's a story of I. A story of an I in bondage or a story of I that's liberated. So that's a subtle kind of trap that... uh, Shankara talks about, he says, both bondage and liberation are states of mind. There's neither birth nor death, neither bound nor aspiring soul, neither liberated soul nor seeker after liberation. This is the ultimate and absolute truth. And Ramana Maharshi says, in a sense, speaking of self-realization is a delusion. It is only because people have been under the delusion that the non-self is the self and the unreal the real that they have to be weaned out of it by the other delusion called self-realization. Because actually the self always is the self. And there's no such thing as realizing it. Who is to realize what and how when all that exists is the self and nothing but the self? So... The important thing to remember is that he acknowledges there that there is this other delusion of self-realization that plays this role of helping to see the delusion so that ultimately it can dissolve. On a relative level, there is a path and there are practices. And the testimony of the mystics is is that they can lead to this realization of what is the truth. I'd like to conclude by reading this passage from Dr. Wolf. Remember, the price of true attainment is always high. The way is straight and narrow. The aspirant must be prepared to offer all upon the altar of sacrifice, his private yearnings and loves, his ambitions and fond convictions, his life and worldly honor, and in the end, even his hope of attaining goal. Thus he must labor as the ambitious labor, but without the urge of personal ambition. He must study assiduously as the scholar, without hope of personal recognition. He must maintain compassionate consideration for the suffering of all other creatures, 
and deals sternly with his own private suffering. He must be prepared to pass through the valley of despair and yet keep on. Indeed, on occasions he may skirt the abyss of madness and yet falter not. Not with all is the trial the same, nor equally severe, but always, of all labors known to man, it is the most severe. In the end, after many years, perhaps near the end of life, he stands before the gate, which opens not until the consummation of the final renunciation. This is the realization there is nothing to be attained with which the candidate abandons its search, content that the gate should never open. But at that moment he has turned the key. The mystic gate has opened. fascinated with that first quote from Simone uh, Wow. We do not overcome our obstacles. We look at them fixedly for as long as is necessary until, if they're due to our powers of illusion, they disappear. So the part that is the illusion can disappear. It doesn't necessarily mean that the thoughts have to disappear and we have to have some unity experience. Mm-hmm. But the mistake about thinking that that is a thing hanging on a wall, you can still have a thought. There's a clock hanging on a wall. Mm-hmm. It's recognized as no more than that. Just as the, the passage from the Buddha, in what is cognized, there's nothing more than what is cognized. So the, the cognition is not a problem. You don't need to get rid of thought. Right. That's, you know, that's almost a maximum. Don't get rid of anything. To get rid of anything. Well, if it's real, another way to look at it is if it's real, you can't get rid of it. Yeah. True. There was a, a teaching of Dr. Wolf, the truth is that which cannot be denied. So you can't deny it. You can't get rid of it. So if you want to find the absolute truth, just find out, find that which you can't get rid of. Thomas been using the language to believe in the existence, the you know, thingness behind appearances. Another term that's used for that movement of the mind is the clinging. So that's the the, the clinging mind. It is the mind that creates. The, the sense of thingness. And so there's an actual sort of a restriction or a, a resistance in the mindset that arises. And that, that habitual resistance is really what we're working on seeing nakedly so that it will then self-liberate. Um, it's a stickiness. Yeah, Dr. Wolf's uh, aphorisms have they actually talked about in terms of resistance as well that the universe of objects is characterized by resistance. Also, you know, you quoted Shankara, 
And I wonder, like, he has this, uh, he has the same, where he says, Atman is Brahman, and Brahman is Atman. What, what, I, what was the last of this Atman? Right, so you could think of that as the subjective pole of reality and the objective pole of reality. So the Brahman is the, the nature of reality or the universe of everything, and the, and the Atman is the, the subjective pole. The relative reality? Well, ultimately, that was the teaching you just referred to, is that they're identical. Atman is Brahman. So... The idea, well, it boils down to the, the first fundamental, consciousness alone is absolutely real. So there is no universe apart from consciousness. And so the, the ultimate nature of the universe, the ultimate nature of the objective world, is the same as the ultimate nature of the subjective world. Another way of saying it is if you know the ultimate nature of the self, you know the ultimate nature of God. And in, in more Buddhist terms, there's the emptiness of the self, and then there's also the emptiness of the objects. So there's this twofold emptiness or egolessness. If you investigate objects you find, you can't find a real object behind the experiences. And then the same with the, with the self. You try and look for the self, you can't find that either. And ultimately, the, the nothing that is, in, is found is, well, what else could it be? But the same nothing. Wesley? With the cup, you were explaining it. It sounds to me like the cup is imaginary, but that doesn't mean that you have to lose track of it or anything. You just aren't imputing any reality to it. Just like uh, you know, the picture behind you, you can be aware that that's there. It's imaginary, but it's there. You know? the, the imaginary world of objects is not isn't just higgledy piggledy. It it can be ordered by the mind, and you can relate to it and everything. And I'm assuming that you're saying, yeah, you can do all that and not impute any reality to it. Yeah, the, the Buddhists would call this uh, conventional existence. Things have a conventional existence that's perfectly valid, and you can say, uh, in a conventional level, that things, uh, you know, there's a chair there, and when all this finishes, we'll be able to stack the chairs, and that's all conventional existence, and it's based on memory and distinctions and all of this framework of conventional existence, and there's a certain sense in that framework where things are valid or not valid, just like in mathematics, you have Euclidean geometry, you have your axioms, and certain things based on those axioms are and are not true. So similarly with our conventional reality, we draw certain fundamental distinctions in time and space. We take those for granted as our uh, axioms. And then there are certain things that are and are not valid within that kind of framework of imaginary distinctions. We say if you find out who you really are, then you'll find out what everything is. Could you all say, so say that as an object? If you find out what a what that cup really is, you'd also find out what everything really is. Yeah. That's kind of scary, isn't it? Scary? Yeah, well, yeah. Oh, it's good news. Yeah, I know, but it's scary good news. It's like trying to count to infinity. Oh my God, imagine if you had to count through every number to get there. It'd be, but, but no, all you have to do is just that one recognition that, oh. Okay, well, there's tea in the back, and until I see you all again, peace to you all.